Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. We were just in the middle of a conversation about how good the book is that we're going to talk to you about today. So I've hastily hit record and... So we don't have the conversation yes. twice and have <laughs> to try and reenact our authentic gushing um, yes. for you all. Um, welcome to Better Words. Yes. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, welcome. This might be our worst uh, intro opening like ever. Um, but yes, welcome, Michelle. How are you? I am good. I am getting ready for a slightly busy week. We've had a few changes to our interview schedule, but actually, even though I know it's going to make next week more stressful for me, it's made this week less stressful. So future Michelle can deal with that. Totally. Future Michelle's problem. <laughs> Who cares? I know. It's um, so funny, isn't I'm... it? I, I feel like I should be coming on, on here and saying, oh, I'm so excited. Like, you know, we're recording this on... Monday um so today is freedom day for Sydney Siders and it's so weird I have, though I have I nothing exactly planned. what you're gonna say <laughs> I have nothing planned you know like as people are like chatting like oh what's going on for freedom day and I'm like it's a Monday I'm working I'm at work <laughs> I you know I don't have a haircut booked I'm not I wanted to go to the movies and then I have looked up the schedule today and have only today just realized that the Dear Evan Hansen movie, which I've been waiting for throughout lockdown, <laughs> is not being released until December in Australia. Oh, I was thought you were going to say you'd missed it, so that's good. No, I mean, I haven't that's missed it, but, like, why can't I see it now? It's out in the oh. US. <laughs> yeah, and um, probably also the UK because I sent you a clip today of um, them performing a song from Dear Evan Hansen yeah. on Strictly. So I imagine that's because the film's come out. I know. They're doing lots of press. It's done the rounds. <laughs> I don't understand why it's not released in Australia. I mean, apart from the fact that they've been closed for ages. So yeah. I don't Look, know. But... Can I give you, I think you should watch Cruella instead. I know it's not the same, but we watched it last night and I loved it so, 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 so much. Yeah, I have heard good things about that one. I do need to watch that movie. I also want to watch Free Guy. Both of yes, we watched that on the weekend as well. Yeah, yeah. So we watched that on Saturday night. Amazing, love it. Ryan Reynolds, hilarious. Love the concept. Really like, I just mind blowing. Loved it. Um, Very funny, of course. And then I think I had maybe low expectations of Cruella just because I was like, "Mm, is it going to be as good as people have said? It was so good I could not see like I had no idea where the story was going as well yeah. like I just I about halfway through I was like okay this must be like the main thing and I was like oh we're only halfway through like there's still so much more to happen so that's yeah, good to really hear actually that. because with everything yeah. about that movie and I have heard it's pretty good like it's good but until you'd said that I realized I don't actually know what the plot of that movie is I but no going idea. in with low expectations is often good yeah, it was really good. And actually, I mean, we all know that I love Strictly Come Dancing, watching it as it plays in the UK. Uh, this week was movie week. So it feels apt that, you know, they did a they did um, one of the couples did Cruella 
and um, there was like Moana and I've been sending them all to you. Yeah. So we've been very movie movie focused the last few days. Um, maybe I should, I'll pop, um, I'll pop one of the routines in the show notes just to like make your week brighter. Which one yeah. do you think I should put in, Caitlin? Give people a taste if they want to have a look. Um, <laughs> oh, it has to be that ballroom one. I've, I don't know who the couple was who danced to it. I'm sorry, but <laughs> which song was it? <laughs> it was, well, so apparently according to the description thingy, it was lover and love story by taylor swift but honestly it was barely recognizable even to me i didn't i had to watch it again to pick up yes okay i will put that one in there that was the pros dance that was like all the strictly pros their group number and that was really really cool (laughs) that has a lovely like i sent it to you obviously because it's taylor swift related but that has a lovely like male male partnership there's obviously a male male partnership couple but the partnership of the pros was Kai who's my favorite with Giovanni I did lockdown dance classes with them they're wonderful so I loved seeing that so I will pop that in because it was really magical the way that they did it it was very cool it It actually reminded me a bit of um the final scenes of the Beauty and the Beast like live action where they're all in the ballroom and oh it was beautiful anyway we teased you with our opening. <laughs> and then we went completely off tangent. course and talked about <laughs> movies. But um, we are doing a little book club chat this week and we are talking about Social Cue by Kay Kerr. So excited for this book. Um, obviously, I will link in the show notes as well to when we chatted to Kay Kerr for the release of her debut novel, which was Please Don't Hug Me. We've both been thrilled. And I remember when we had that discussion like a year or so ago with Kay, her telling us what Social Cue was about and both of us being like, this sounds amazing. Yeah, we got so excited when Kay told us the premise for her second book so long ago. And then, you know, we've seen like announcements on social media, the cover reveals. We even mentioned this book in our episode with Danielle, didn't we, about YA to look out for this year. So very, very excited to read this one. Texts were lovely enough to send us copies. We've read it. Shall I read We the love it. Yes, read the blurb. You're good. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I always make you read the blurb because I've usually read um, an electronic copy. So yay for me having the book. Um, so <clears throat> Zoe Kelly is starting a new phase of her life. High school was a mess of bullying and autistic masking that left her burnt out and shut down. Now, with an internship at an online media company, the first step on the road to her dream writing career, she is ready to reinvent herself. But she didn't count on returning to her awkward and all-too-recent high school experiences for her first writing assignment. When her piece about her non-existent dating life goes viral, 18-year-old Zoe is overwhelmed with more and more than a little surprised by the response. But with the deadline and a list of romantic contenders from the past, she is hoping that one of those old sparks will turn into a new flame. Social Cue is a funny and heartwarming story about deciphering the confusing signs of attraction and navigating the path to love. I mean, I just loved it so, so much. I... How do how I find out? How was it? How, like, how do I find ooh. out who liked me in high school that I didn't know? <laughs> this book's so relatable. And I mean, I'm not surprised because when we talked about this with Kay in 
the in the podcast interview, but her background, like mine, is in regional journalism. In fact, we worked for the same company for a while. So I know the sorts of like environments that she would have worked in and stuff. Um, and so I am not surprised that, you know, this is one of the very few books I've read that really accurately portrays the whole internship at an online newspaper thing. I loved that because yeah. it's very difficult to not make it like a caricature, like Devil Wears Prada situation, um, to keep the reality of it, to show the mundane bits. And I I loved that. So yeah, yeah that was that really, was really good. Bit. And it is funny. I really think that this book is a great one for people who maybe to recommend to people who are like, oh, I'm too old for YA or no, I don't really read YA anymore because yeah. honestly, like this one could could very easily, like it's it really is the perfect example to be like, no, trust me, you would like YA because this is a beautiful YA rom-com. But Zoe is 18. She's at university. She's actually at, a, like, at her internship like she's at work. You know, I think, like I think if Zoe it's was almost not like- YA. <laughs> Exactly. No, I was thinking that too. So if Zoe was like listed as being like 21 or 22, you could still kind of class that as YA, but it could easily be adult as well. Mm. Like it definitely has that crossover appeal and it's just so, even though it's like her high school crushes, that totally still relates and people will, adult readers will still love this book. It's just. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Um, so what did you think of the love interests slash past crushes? I mean, I loved every single one of them for who they were and what they taught her, you know, like it was yeah. so fun. Like there is one that's, you know, a not great date, but we all have those. We all have dickheads in our past um, who, you know, unfortunately this one came back to Zoe. Yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, like, there was one um, who, there was one girl, actually, and so I thought, well, hang on, I never thought about that. I just started liking guys because that's what everyone told me to do. And, like, thinking about that a bit and talking to this girl as a friend, I thought that was a really sweet scene as well. Mm. Oh, so good. I liked as well, obviously, with Kay's experience as a journalist and, and making the internship there. I really liked that every few chapters we actually read Zoe's stories as yeah. well. And again, one of my pet peeves when people do insert online news articles or magazine articles and stuff into books is that they do not read at all like an actual real life newspaper article would. It's just a pet peeve of mine. Like it, it's yeah, like well, if you. you should- yeah like if you read musical theater stuff and like that's not what happens like it just it just is a pet peeve of mine but obviously because Kay has that experience as well she has made the articles like you would expect to read them on something like I was imagining Bubble to be a bit like a like pedestrian yeah or like junkie something fun like that that's like news but also or BuzzFeed even like yeah, totally. Yeah. And like that's yeah. what Zoe's stories are, is they are it, it was a personal series, you know, she was writing these like personal essay article things. Um, but yeah, they were great. You totally would read them on pedestrian or BuzzFeed or the like. Yeah. 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 It's just 
I know we we can't say anything except that we love this book but like exploring the start of your career exploring like the whole you know heterosexuality as the norm of things obviously we haven't even touched on the way that you know autism is explored in this book we spoke with Kay um about please don't hug me that her that novel was sort of looking at her own autism spectrum diagnosis and of course that is an element as well in this because Zoe is autistic and there's a lot in there about you know the um sort of emotional labor she's expected to do in the workplace as well and the advocacy she does for herself and I really like the way that that was addressed at the end as well yes I really really loved that as well it was so well done by Kay obviously um but (laughs) not only you know in her internship is Zoe experiencing you know this like dating uh journey and writing about that but helping out with other kinds of stories as well um, and helping one of her colleagues with a story where the police were involved with an autistic man um, and, like, the language being used in the articles and, like, you know, journalists need to be trained on this. Do police need to be trained on this? It was so good. I definitely think that we as journalists should have got – this sort of training like around like language and we get we get training or we get guidance around language with like suicide for example and we have specific things that we're told to say or not to say Um, we also obviously get a lot of legal guidance but something that it never occurred to me really until I started following uh you know people like Carly Findlay online and uncovering you know more of my own maybe like things that I had said in the past that were ableist or just attitudes in society that we don't question yeah I really think that journalists should be given training on this um and I love that the way the way that was addressed in the book definitely made me think a lot about like when I do start working as a journalist again and I am in that situation like how can I make sure that I'm not doing any harm because I will hold my hands up and say I've definitely used incorrect terms in the past and I'm pretty sure that I used the incorrect term or kept the incorrect term for something in my true crime podcast, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's something I was like reading that and I was like, oh my God, I feel so bad about that. Um, But at the same time, I guess like just have to, knowing that now, move forward and make sure that I don't do that again. Keep improving and keep learning. Yeah. But definitely something that should be done. I mean, in more workplaces than just as journalists as well, but like Zoe sort of says even in the book, like she's like, you know, they the journalists are like driving these news agendas and stuff. Like they should be the ones using the correct language before they criticise other organisations for not doing the things correctly. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, that element of the story was really well written and really well explored um of course like we were texting each other and you had said you know that I would love this um and I texted you something like oh my god this is so brilliant and you were like I told you and I was like I never doubted it like (laughs) I knew I was gonna love this book I never ever doubted it for a second it's magnificent 
Um, and yeah, it just has that amazing crossover appeal. And I think because it's all, it's also set in Brisbane, we love that. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably going to be another book that I send to some overseas friends as well because I just Wonderful I love it. Of and, well, the friend the friend that I'm thinking of as well, she lived in Brisbane for a bit, so I know that she'll enjoy the Brisbane setting and yeah. you know the the different things like them going for a date at New Farm and like just even I have you know, having been there for casual things was like, oh, I know where that is. Yes, yeah. I can picture that. Like, I know. we love that. <laughs> I mean, we do love um, Queensland books and Brisbane books, but, yeah, it's so funny. It's like obviously, you know, you and I both read a lot of wonderful, you know, excellent books that we really love, but uh, every now and then you get a book that you'll, you're just like, all I want to do is be like, holy shit, it's so good. And <laughs> yeah. Like just like heart eye emojis all over this book. If I could just hug this book, I would. Like it's just brilliant. So please, please read it. It's just come out a few weeks ago. Um, I think it snuck into the September releases. Um, So it is available now. Um, And as Caitlin said at the start, thank you to the text publishing team for sending us copies of this very pretty book but I'm gonna go and buy extras for friends <laughs> yeah I know right I really anyone ever now from now on who maybe doubts why I just want to be like read this book <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so lovely oh well that was wonderful um I enjoyed gushing about that yeah very excited for our interview today it is um not as book focused as some of our other chats no. we go off on a lot of tangents but it is all about mental health and our bodies and just society in general so yeah yeah and we had such a great time yeah it's fun to record absolutely um something that we do want to point out I didn't want to fully edit this bit out of the conversation because it sometimes was a nice it's hard to guys we're too chatty sometimes it's hard to like edit things out cleanly yeah um, it's really hard if we then continue to go on and talk about something that is a good point and if you took out the first bit it wouldn't sense. make sense <laughs> so yeah we just wanted to address something that we yeah. mentioned so there is one point in this interview where we are talking about um our experiences on the stage um and acting and we do use the term prostitute when referring to roles that we've played on stage for me that was in Lamis. um and normally obviously we would never use that term and we and Sarah wouldn't use that term either we would obviously use the term sex worker but we use that term in the context in, of in something context, like lame is. Yeah. And yeah. then afterwards we all sort of went, oh no, we, we, we did that. So rather than completely cutting it out, we just wanted to say that we understand the context around that and we would never use it outside the context of the role in lame is. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to sort of make that clear and add that on um, because we do try to, obviously, as you've heard from our chat, we do try to make sure that we're using language that doesn't harm people, doesn't hurt them, um, and yeah, is as inclusive and as is possible. correct and appropriate. So with that, enjoy the interview. 
and we'll be back next week. Our guest today is a writer, artist and photographer. She makes work about anxiety, control and intimacy in text, video and immersive installations across Australia and internationally. She is a Walkley nominated essayist and critic and co-host of the podcast Contact Mike. But today we are discussing her beautiful book, The First Time I Thought I Was Dying. Welcome, Sarah Walker. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. This book is, I mean, the cover is stunning. I just want to have a note for the cover. It is isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Josh Durham at Design by Committee. Excellent work. (laughs) It's so good. Um, But yes, quick note on the cover. But yes, the words inside are just as beautiful um, and thought-provoking and everything. You really, like, stop and think while you're reading this book. So how would you describe it to people? Oh, I sort of... uh describe it to people usually by saying it's kind of about how we live in a society that tells us that we should be in control of our bodies and our minds at all times and our bodies and minds are like absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) I feel that a lot at the moment and I'm I'm sure we'll get into that as well but yeah that just yeah yeah I feel like the it it felt um sort of pertinent when I when I started writing it but I tell you what the pandemic has really um made everyone very aware of being a corporeal being and the the many ways in which that is a bit unexpected and unpredictable and problematic and glorious. I guess actually this wasn't one of the questions that I'd planned but I'm just going to chuck it in there because you mentioned that like you talk a lot in this book about you know your experiences with mental health and things like that. I guess the pandemic is an interesting way for people who maybe have never experienced that loss of control with their body, maybe have never experienced, for example, like chronic physical illness or mental health issues and stuff, for them to sort of, I guess, have a bit of an understanding of what it may feel like on a personal level for a lot of people who feel out of control and feel like the world is or things happening in their life are out of control. I guess on a global scale, we've all had a taste of that, even if we've never experienced that personally. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's a time that's really made everybody vigilant about their health in a way that a lot of people I know are anyway about their physical and mental health, where we're kind of all in this situation of analysing every situation through a risk framework, which um, is probably new for for a lot of people and quite frightening and and a bit hard to kind of get your head around and, and to be able to do that and also to not absolutely lose it every time you have to leave the house. Yeah, yeah. And I think even like, even though, for example, I've had, you know, issues with my mental health and anxiety about things, Mm. physically I've never had to worry about that stuff. And actually, yeah, a lot of points I do stop and think about that now and I do notice it more and I guess it is, yeah, something I guess we should all be – more aware of when we talk, you know, with people in general who are disabled or who have chronic illness. And I guess a lot of people are trying to say at the moment, hey, like it's not, you know, I guess a lot of the conversations around the political elements of COVID and stuff, there is that idea that some people are expendable, which obviously is not it's the horrible. case at all. Yeah. But it's it's just that bringing an awareness of, you know, a fraction of what people in those situations live with on a daily basis that we as able to people like have never experienced and stuff and I think Mm. 
yeah that's just an interesting thing that like popped into my head as you were saying that so yeah it's wild isn't yeah. it I recently <laughs> read a, a thing about um the kind of frameworks for how the ICUs um, will manage if they're over capacity and they were saying that our people above 72 um may be considered kind of ineligible for ICU care and I was like oh my dad's 75 and has cancer like oh this, yeah. yeah this is this is getting really real you know in a way that I've been very lucky that it mostly hasn't been real like my access to the the health uh, industry has been rocky but you know mostly I've been able to advocate for what I need but yeah it's really it's really wild being in a situation where where we're experiencing our vulnerability as humans in a in a unprecedented way yeah um yeah let's all hope for the best with that one <laughs> um so you know oh my gosh this book just really yeah as Caitlin said made us stop and think a lot and we want to talk a about some themes because each um we should explain to people that each sort of chapter essay is this self-contained sort of thing which I love because you can sort of read that put it down for a bit have a think about it reflect on it come back to it um and in fact I think with the themes that you discuss probably what you need to do as readable as your writing is I think taking some time to sit and digest it as well is probably really really helpful um but yeah we want to talk about like a few different themes in those sort of sections and the first chapter um opens with something that you know so many everybody but especially girls and women um can relate to which is body image and it just it hit me so much like especially that moment I was probably about the same age as you are when you describe seeing yourself in the mirror and weaponizing that word fat and suddenly that I, I love the way you talked about that you know the way that you changed the way you viewed yourself then and the way that you used mirrors and that you'd only ever used it in a particular way and that just hit home so much I know so many other people like almost in fact I think there's a line in the book isn't there where you said you confided in a friend once of, of the experience you'd had as a teenager and she sort of said oh so you're a teenage girl then like it's <laughs> so widespread all of us do this it's horrible yeah, yeah. I know. yeah. <laughs> but um I think what was fascinating because obviously like there's also a lot of writing about body image and stuff like that but what was fascinating to me was to bring in your experience as a photographer and to talk about light and you know the way that what we see is never really real and all that sort of stuff so can you tell us a bit more about why you wanted to kind of explore those two things and I guess as it were explore body image through the lens of, of photography yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> I couldn't help it <laughs> I mean as as you say Michelle there is and there's a lot of writing about this and because this experience is so widespread for young women especially the experience of taking control over your body in a really destructive way and trying to shrink it as much as possible um and so I really wanted to find a way to talk about my experience of body image that um maybe felt like it was it was providing a new uh, angle on the situation and uh I I was really able to sort of track my own experience navigating how I viewed my body with the moment at which I started representing my body with a camera and realizing that that was a new way of being able to control how my physical form was interpreted by other people. I think um, the essay kind of starts with the idea that the, the saying the camera never lies is patently untrue because a camera is a machine operated by people and people 
only experience the world through processes of, of, of understanding. And so when you point a camera at someone, you are the photograph you're taking is your understanding of them. It's not, um, it's not neutral in any way. And becoming a photographer, I, I realised that in, in such a staggering way and there are so many subtle um, ways in which you can really shift the way a body reads in an image. And when I first started taking photos of people, a lot of people had never had a good quality photo taken of them. And it could be a very um, empowering experience. People would kind of look at these images and say, I've never seen myself like that. But of course now, you know, I've been photographing for nearly 15 years. Now we all have iPhones and most of us have social media accounts and we are all getting really good at photographing ourselves in a way that makes sense to us. And you know, my, my partner looks at images I take of myself and uh, he's always like, I mean, you don't, you don't look like that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Yes, I, I absolutely do. And he's like, you're doing, you're doing that boss bitch face again. I'm like, ah, excuse me. And he says, yeah, you don't, that's not really a face you do in, in real life. And I was like, don't I? No, I look like this surely. I mean, even, you know, even with all this experience, I'm like, yeah, that, that's how I look. And it's not. Partly yeah. because it's lit in a certain way, I'm posed in a certain way. I figured out that the left-hand side of my face looks better on camera than the right-hand side of my face. If I light myself from a 45-degree angle from the top, it's more flattering. If you put a softbox on the light, it's more flattering. If I Photoshop out my under-eye bags, it's obviously more flattering. Um, <laughs> and it's a, really, it's a really interesting power. You know, there's one thing to have that power over yourself. It's one completely different thing to have that power over other people. And um, there's a lot of kind of ethical complexities that come with photographing other people and you know in my work sometimes I'm photographing people with disability or really young people and and having to make these really complex decisions about being like that photograph of that nine-year-old there's kind of a shine on their forehead Do, is it okay can I can I get rid of that is that uh, you know photoshopping the skin of this kid is that okay um yeah it's really complex and and people kind of increasingly ask me to do things that I don't feel comfortable doing and I have to be like I'm not going to make you two dress sizes smaller I'm not going to make your waist smaller um yeah there's a it's a it's, it's a rich topic and a complex one I love the way that you said that your sort of personal stance on that is anything that um is transient yeah so a pimple light shine things like that but yeah it is something that I had never thought about really from a like in a professional standpoint of doing it for other people mm. you do hold so much power yeah um you really do and I mean even yeah. as a journalist when I would go to take pictures for people you get that like you say in the book people would be like oh you can fix that or yeah. oh make me look good or oh I'm gonna break the camera like all this sort of stuff and and even just deciding yeah. at what millisecond to take the photo really I mean you'll see this a lot in press photography depending on the newspaper and how they feel about a politician they photograph them very differently. And like if you take a photo yeah. of someone, for example, making an F shape, like if they're saying fracking, their face looks, it looks really like, stupid. Yeah, like, like they look yeah. really angry. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Do yeah. they look bored? Do they yeah. look, you know, happy or excited? Like yeah. it's so different. I, and I wasn't the one taking those particular photographs, mm. but if I ever had to, because I used to work at a newspaper, Sarah, yeah. um, so if I ever had to, you know, fill like a stock image or something, um, you know, of the Prime Minister to go with like a headshot thing, you do try and match as well the, okay, is this a, a good news story? We'll get something where they're smiling. Obviously, if it's a sad news story, we're not going to get one where they're smiling. We're going to get one where they're looking a bit more somber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was yeah. my personal thing of just match the mood. Mm. Don't have them being all like, oh, great, they've <laughs> announced a million dollars funding. And when it's a story about people dying. Yeah. Um, but I also 
that I, I've got to admit, you know, there are going to be biases there I have against certain politicians that I, <laughs> uninter- and I did, yeah. I did try and police myself a bit and be like, are you just picking that photograph because you don't like their policy? <laughs> like, yeah. I, did, I did, but you know, that, that is something that again, a bit like your ethics as a photographer, like that was my, me as a journalist being like, I should try, even though it's impossible to be unbiased, mm. I should try my hardest to interrogate why I might pick that. Yeah. People totally do that though. Like, yeah. like what just came to mind for me for some reason was mm. photos of Kate and Wills at a war memorial in Canberra. I found some like free postcards when I was there last and there was all these photos of them at the war memorial in Canberra. And I was like, they had them in the free pile because it was a few years before. And I was like, oh my God, how funny. I'm going to send these to my grandparents or whatever. <laughs> and yeah. I was like showing my family members and people were like, God, God, she looks grumpy. And I was like, huh. it was probably five in the morning and she's at like a mm. dawn service on Anzac Day or something. Like, yeah. is she supposed to look happy? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, let's yeah. not even talk about women's magazines like that. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. yeah. A whole other level of like Megan versus Kate, for example, of like, let's pick which images. And but also all the like the beach photos of celebrities. Yes. If you oh. if you take a step, there will be a point in that step at which your cellulite is most visible if you're in a bikini. And they'll those those yeah, paparazzi like, are just lands holding, down. Yeah. Those paparazzi <laughs> are holding the shutter down and they're waiting for that moment where your cellulite kind of rests and that's the one that goes to print. Mm. It's, and it's in it's such unflattering light as well. Oh, on yeah, a beach, totally. middle of the day, harsh light, like you said, um, you were talking about in the book the gym with the angles of the the light to try and make muscles look bigger, but it works the same for cellulite or marks on a body. Is like you've got that really horrible, harsh, unflattering light, and it also makes you look sort of grumpier as well. <laughs> you've got those shadows under your eyes yeah, and yeah. stuff, yeah. so you look depressed and angry to be, you know, a normal human body because yeah. um, you don't have a beach body and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> oh it's, my god, it's an absolute minefield and. Yeah, but I really love the way that, like, for me, I feel like I've read a lot on body image and this was, like, a totally new take and I I absolutely loved that and also was just like, oh, my God, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Like, amazing. <laughs> That's very nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, we all do. And we could talk about, you know, Photoshop and body image forever. Um, oh, yeah. But we should probably move on because the other thing that I would love to talk to you about <laughs> is actually it's the very next chapter um, where you write about some of your experience in theatre and in drama and everything. And I was a total drama kid, total theatre kid. (laughs) And I was reading it and, like, you write about a scene where, you know, you were acting and your character was, like, raped on stage and I was reading it and I was like, for the first time, I thought, oh, my God, why were we all so excited to play Mm. the prostitutes in Les Mis? (laughs) Everyone, like, I was in a production of that a couple of years ago and everyone wanted to be in that scene. And it was only the um, girls who were under 18 that the director said no. Okay. And the the director said, no, you can't be in this scene. You'll be in something else. Um, And a few of the, because it was community theatre, and a few of the cast members who were teachers or lawyers who said, "Mm, probs not. (laughs) Maybe I was. It's a small town. Yeah, don't want to get recognised on stage. But. God, we all had such a good time. And I was like, this is so, and reading that chapter, I was like, this is so weird. Mm. <laughs> Why well, I mean, did we but, You know, that? like if you're playing a sex worker in Lame Is, how often in your life do you get to act in a way that where your sexuality is totally on display and you get to fully inhabit yourself as a sexual being? Like never. So that's where yeah. everyone wants to 
be the prostitute that Lane is because you get to be sexy and no one tells you you're a whore for doing it. I no, mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. you are because that's what we're trying to portray. Um, but, yeah, it was very interesting to read that and I really liked that line, plays don't exist to be nice. That's what musical theatre is for, even though my example was just about musical theatre. Um, but, yes, I suppose, you know, our actual question around this fun theatre chapter is when did you start to actually realise that maybe this is a bit strange and that you were always excited to play those scenes and well yeah I mean so so in the in the chapter I sort of talk about this the fact that when I was in my early 20s and I was doing a lot of theater the theater that we were really excited about making was theater that went to the hard places we were like that's what theater is for for theater is to shock people into an encounter with things I can't talk about so we're going to talk about violence and we're going to talk about war and we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about violent sex and death. And and most of us had never experienced it in real life. And we were totally oblivious to the fact that people in our audiences had and had real experiences with these things happening. And it wasn't until I'd kind of left um, the student theatre world for the most part that people started saying things like, we should put trigger warnings on the doors outside. And there was there was these huge arguments where people were like, um, saying that there's suicide in Romeo and Juliet is so patronising. And other people were like, well, people I've known have died by suicide and I would like to know if those things are in the show. And I have experienced violent sexual assault and I don't want to see a show where someone is having that happen to them. And... Uh, now looking back, I'm just like, good God, we were so naive, and that naivety. Young artists. Well, yeah, exactly, and yeah. it, you know, this this idea that art should be a thing that hurts uh, is a really damaging myth that attends a lot of art making. You know, I, I still know so many people who are like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, um, I all of my relationships have fallen apart, but I finished this book, and it's like that. But you, you know, you can. <laughs> those two things don't have to exist. In, in in opposition to each other um but yeah we were we were convinced that the way the way to make good art was to make art that hurt people and frightened people and shocked people and that good art is only like the serious oh, dramatic yeah. art well when's the last time you saw a comedy win best picture you know like yeah, yeah there's this real sense that good art is serious hard painful art and um it wasn't really until the me too movement started happening in hollywood that I started having conversations with people in the theatre where we were like, tell you what, if anyone was in our rehearsal rooms, we would be in trouble. Um, and then slowly those conversations started happening at the fringes of the theatre as well. And people started being like, oh, it's still it's still happening. And the, the thing yeah. that makes it really alarming is that it's, it's happening in the professional theatre scene as well. The people who are obsessed with Arto as, as young makers and who learn ways of um, getting performances out of actors that are quite aggressive. They often end up being professional theatre directors and they don't necessarily change their methodology, methodologies much when they make that transition. And so, yeah, there's this kind of, and I should say that a lot of theatre is, is, you know, incredible and safe and kind and caring and, and that the theatre is getting better at recognising that maybe we need to take better care of our performers and of our audiences yeah. I think for a long, you know, for a lot of people, it was like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make this really full on thing happen on stage, and we're gonna take care of the actors. But at no point was anyone like, hey, what are we gonna do with the audience who have to sit there and watch it? And if you get up and leave, you know, it's that's not an easy thing to do. I've only seen a handful of people get up, uh, leave shows. 
in my life. Um, so, yeah, but in some ways that essay is kind of about um, just what it is to become mature and to learn to care about people and to learn empathy and, and kindness and, and ways of working that are thoughtful. But I, I should stress that those periods of time where we were making that work, they were also magnificent. Like that that period of time of, of making and caring deeply about the work and discovery, that was incredibly important for my life as an artist and, and for many of the people that I continue to work with. And we are, you know, people are getting better at teaching younger people ways to be kind to each other because we've just sort of rolled in and we're like, oh, well, no one was sitting with us in the rehearsal room being like, okay, okay, so what structures are you putting in place to make this all right for everybody? But it, it is happening more. But, um, yeah, when Me Too started happening in film, uh, the, the theatre started being like, ah, uh, huh, there are some things happening now that we maybe need to talk about. And I think it's good and, you know, we can only improve and get better. And, like, you do hear, you know, good stories now about, like, the, what do they call them? They're, like, inter- like intimacy, intimacy coaches. Yeah. Like that. Like, yeah. You, like, there was so much talk about those roles and people in the crew and stuff who were dealing yeah. with that, like, for normal people and sex education. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That. And that's a fantastic job. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that you don't give two people fake swords and just be like, just give it a go, I guess. You say, okay, we're bringing in a fight choreographer. We're going to teach you how to work with these weapons and we're going to finally choreograph this fight so that no one gets hurt. And the yeah. role of an intimacy coordinator every is to kind of... Exactly. And we do it the same every time. Um, yeah, and an intimacy coordinator, that, that role is the same kind of idea. It's being like, okay, at this point, when you say this line, put your hand on this person's shoulder. And when you say this line, you do this with your other hand. And we're going to choreograph it like a dance. And if anyone's feeling weird about it, we're going to re-choreograph it. And you're going to do it the same every time. And you're not just going to shove your tongue in the face of the performer that you're working with, please. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it obviously had to happen. And I'm so glad that it is. Um, Talking about this though, reminds me a bit of some of the themes that we sort of discuss with um, Danielle Binks and the monster of her age sort of touches on this idea of get the performance at any cost, even Mm -hmm. if that means traumatizing someone. And yeah, I think a young child in a horror movie, which is what Danielle's novel's about. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I mean, this is still, this is still happening. The American, increasingly I feel like the thing we're learning is that America is a bit broken in many Anyways, yeah, um, one of those ways is that America's really obsessed with method acting, but they're not doing method acting. So uh, Lee Strasberg, who was the the guy who sort of taught the method to people, based his uh, form of training on Russian performance techniques, which were about the idea that when you perform a scene, you go, okay, uh, what's an experience that I've had that kind of mimics this experience? What can I draw from that? Can I sort of remind myself of that experience when I'm performing this scene? Method acting, as it currently exists now, and the stories you kind of hear out of Hollywood, is just being a pain in the ass to work with. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's being cruel to your fellow performer. God, I I really strongly believe that every actor should have to do um, a crewing role on a film because you figure out very quickly that you are not the most important person in the room. Oh my God. And (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And if you're the sort of person who's like, yeah, so I'm playing a character who lives in the 1880s, which means that I have to um, dig a burrow in the snow and I'm going to live in the burrow in the snow and everyone has to address me by my character name and uh, I 
haven't slept in the scene, so I'm not going to sleep for a week. And I have a, an abusive relationship with my spouse, so I'm going to abuse the actor that I'm playing. Like, grow up! I know. <laughs> and Some of the stories that you hear about this where people are like, yeah, he kept himself very isolated on set and stayed away from everyone else. And I'm like, <laughs> it's called acting seriously like a a good actor one of the most magnificent things that you see on set and I've spent a lot of time on um sets as a stills photographer is watching an actor go from like having a cup of coffee and laughing with the crew to just like taking five seconds and then just emerging as a totally different human being that is good performance having to be like oh you can only talk to me by my actor's name means you're lazy and also a not very good performer. Like if you can't pull it off unless you are living the life, you have no business being an actor because you're being, you're being, you're not acting. And, and a good actor is, is a, like the, the connection that they have with the other people that they're playing against. The reaction that they bring to the scene is incredible. It's electric, but you never see it from a method actor because they're not, they're not paying attention to the person opposite them. They're inside their own head. Yeah. Being yeah. like, how do I be this horrible person? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a nightmare. Good God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love, yeah. Everything you just said. Amazing. Um, so obviously, you know, I've said the book is called The First Time I Thought I Was Dying. Do you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, the experience behind that title? Yeah, of course. It, I mean, the title is um, partly a, a joke in that the idea it's like <laughs> the first time I thought I mean, it was not the first time. It's not the only <laughs> time. It continues to happen regularly. Yeah. So uh, I was a person who went through my life being like, gee, I have a lot of friends with mental health issues, but gosh, my mental health great. Gee, I don't have anxiety <laughs> at all. Um, I'm just going to help other people get help. You know, I just really advocate for therapy and medication if you need, but not for, I don't need it. What are you talking about? I don't. So, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel you so much. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so when I was 22, a friend of mine had recently uh, died. It was, um, it was, I was experiencing grief for the first time. Uh, it was a lot. And I was doing a terrible job of looking after myself. And um, I was driving to the university for a uh, rehearsal. Um, I was playing a fairy in uh, The Tempest. It was not a large role. Uh, and I was, really I was going to say, I've, I've done The Tempest for university, like in a literature sense, and I don't remember there being many fairies. But oh, yeah, they're just kind yeah. of poking around. Uh, yeah, I, I think I remember that. I, I would had... be happy if I never have to look at that again, though, let's be honest. Oh, like... it's a river play. You can have a lot of fun with it. The director was a magician, and so uh, there was a lot of magic effects in the show, and I had these, like, things where I went, and, like, fire happened in my hands. But uh, by the oh, end of the season, cool. the um, the the fire starters were like totally soaked in the lighter fluid. So I just would set my hands on fire and be like, oh, no. okay, I'm just going to go backstage and hope that this problem goes away. Um, oh, no. Anyway, so I was, uh, I was driving on the freeway to get to university and I started feeling a bit weird. Uh, I started feeling kind of a bit dizzy and a bit lightheaded and then I sort of couldn't see really like my vision was really tunneling my heart was going crazy and I was convinced I was having a heart attack like pretty much everyone who's ever had a panic attack for the yeah, first time logical. I was like I'm yeah. dying strap in it's happening finally yeah. um so I I managed to pull over uh I couldn't I remember my I was so stressed out my hands wouldn't work so I was trying to 
like open my phone to call somebody to come get me and I couldn't. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to die. And then after a few minutes and I hadn't, I don't know why I didn't try calling an ambulance. Um, and when it became apparent that I wasn't imminently going to die, I um, got back in the car and drove to uni and did the rehearsal and no one yelled at me for being late. So it was a good day. And I drove home and I was like, huh, that was weird. And then a strange. Of, yeah, <laughs> strange. Yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I was driving over the Westgate Bridge and the same thing happens. It, if you're going to have a panic attack, I don't recommend having it on a major highway, especially not on a bridge that you can't get off. I don't, it's not great. I mean, and, they're horrible at the best of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. Must have been so scary. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, so soon after, I called my mum in tears. I was like, <laughs> and then she burst into tears and she was like, oh, my God, you're probably having some sort of heart thing. My mother, I should point out, was a nurse and should have known better. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to her doctor and I was like, oh, I have this. And she was like, oh, yeah, it could be your heart. Make sure you don't drink any caffeine and uh, you'll be fine. Uh, that was really, you know how sometimes you had these moments where you're like, that was a sliding doors moment. That could, yeah. my life could have gone in a really different direction at that moment because now that I look back on her tone, I knew she was humoring me. And um, what probably would have been helpful would have been if she'd said, so I think you, you had a thing called a panic attack and we can give you a psychologist. And instead I just stopped drinking caffeine and didn't drive on a freeway for seven years. And then I was, I did okay for a while and then um I started dating somebody who drinks a lot of coffee and I was like oh, I should get into coffee that'd be great um and then I started uh having the I, I, I found that driving over an overpass gave me panic attacks and then any road that was wider than two lanes and then just getting in a car and just getting out of bed um so it took a really 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 long time for me to be like I, I, I think I'm okay actually like I think people who were okay maybe don't think about the fact that they might have to die to feel better. Like, I feel like that's probably not the best. And then, uh, yeah, my, my experience of actually getting help was a bit rocky. The first person I saw was a, a therapist who was also a hypnotherapist who um, I said, I, here are some roads I struggle to drive on. And she went, that road's not scary. That's crazy. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I didn't know you were allowed to call <laughs> mental health patients crazy. Here we are. And then she tried to hypnotize me and she said, okay, imagine you're behind the wheel of a car. And I immediately burst into tears and she was like, well, this is going to take a lot longer than I thought. And um, (laughs) so uh, I didn't go back to her. Um, I remember very distinctly being back in my car after that session and being like, I don't think anyone can fix me. Like if this is what therapy is, I don't think it's going to get better. But friends, I'm here to tell you good therapists are really very good. Good medication also Big thumbs up. Yeah, I can get out of bed like all the time now. It's great. Highly recommend. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you talk about like a sliding doors moment where when you first go and ask for help, because this is a thing as well. We have a lot of things like it was Are You OK Day the other day and a lot of people put up some social media posts saying, oh, my God, ask for help. The thing that I get cynical about is that a lot of people do ask for help and a lot of people are dismissed or told that everyone's anxious or I cannot tell you the amount of times that I was told oh everyone gets anxious or everyone worries about stuff like that and I was like okay yeah clearly this is just how I'm meant to live my life yeah 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 but I have to say I am like hashtag blessed with the best GP ever I I don't think I had like a full-blown panic attack Mm. um 
but I had enough that I did think that something was up with my heart. I was like, why is my heart racing? And why has it been like 24 hours? And why do I feel like I want to vomit all the time? And and it was to do, it was was my first date. So that didn't help. And (laughs) the guy, the guy did kiss me and like, did just go straight with the tongue. And I was like, this is my first kiss. This is really fucking weird. And I don't like it. And I feel like I'm going to throw up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, story, but I love that story. I know. I know. It's so like, and I was about 21 and I went to my GP and I was like, I just don't know what's wrong. I, but I, I sort of similar to you in that, like, I just went to work and I was like, I'll just book an appointment. I won't take a day off because yeah. Lord knows I couldn't do that. Um, and you know, I don't want to let people down. Heaven forbid that I actually put myself first once. And I remember distinctly standing in a, at a press conference in the baking hot sun. I think it was Barnaby Joyce. And like, I remember cause it was a national thing. Um, there are a lot of other press there as well. And I remember holding the microphone out and like sort of angling myself away from everyone and getting like, I was just like really hot. And I was like, I oh, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Like, am I going to, th-? and just like the whole time I was like, I don't know what he's, what he's saying because in my head, I'm just like, don't throw up, don't throw up in front of everyone. Don't throw up, don't throw up. Like that was just on repeat. And I went to the doctor and I, you know, drove very frantically across town and was like, what's wrong with me? Oh my God. And she was like, I think you may just have anxiety. Yeah. Well, not just having it. She's like, I think that you might have anxiety. Yeah. And like, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to, we're going to work on fixing that. And like, I want you to book an appointment to come back and do a mental health plan. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. Uh, thank God that I had that because you very easily could have been another thing that I just put off and, and put on myself as, oh, you're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. So I feel incredibly lucky with that. But even then, like I did that and then I was like, I'm fine. Um, I have anxiety and it's fine. Like I, that's fine. I probably always have. It's fine. I know what I'm doing. It's, yeah. it's fine. And it wasn't like, it was like another six months before I worked up the courage to actually go to a therapist. Yeah, yeah. It's very good. And it's still my therapist, thankfully, because then I don't have to explain the complicated mess that is my brain mm. over and over again. But there's so many but things going on here, right? Like one of the things is that boomers don't know what anxiety is and they think it means being worried. Um, and also like, <laughs> if there's one thing baby boomers are good at, it's suppressing things and then just yeah. having breakdowns, like just having heart attacks. So like, where did this come from? No, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, there's also that, you know, we're very lucky in that we were able to advocate for our needs with good health professionals. A lot of people don't have a regular GP. A lot of people don't have a good GP. And then like the number of bulk billing GPs I've gone to who I ended up in hospital because of a series of bad bulk billing GPs who were just like, what we're going to do is we're going to fix the problem by just giving you more painkillers. You know, like so many people have bad experiences with the health industry. A lot of people don't have the language skills or the energy, if you're a person with a chronic illness or a disability, to be able or to the financial Exactly. The financial, because that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah. I, my GP doesn't book bill. I pay for every appointment and now I'm like, of course I would never go and see anyone else because she's amazing. But... That does, and actually, I think something that because we've just come back from living for two years in England, mm. ugh, the NHS is bloody amazing. Mm. Um, but I think something the the biggest thing that I thought was wonderful about England um, was that you can just keep renewing your prescriptions online, huh. um, especially with COVID. Whereas there have been there have been times where I didn't have enough money, so I went to a bulk billing GP and was like, "This is my anxiety medication." can I please just get this prescription? I think the fact that you have to book an appointment, I understand why, but when it's things like that, like what they would do is say you could go on and you could renew it like three times before you had to either ring or go in and see them for review. But the doctor could also override that if you rang and were like, I don't have it, like it's anxiety medication, I'm not changing anything. 
they would be fine. Mm. But yeah, like thank God for medication because totally. And there's so many, you know, mental health intersects with so many different issues. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but did anyone ever teach you as a young person a coping mechanism for negative emotions? Did anyone ever teach you how to communicate? (laughs) Yeah, like if if I think about like when I first started seeing a good psychologist and she was like, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. And I was like, what do you mean? I know how to breathe. I know how to breathe. (laughs) She was like, yeah, but if you breathe like this, your anxiety will be better. And I was like, okay, this seems like a thing you should learn pretty early. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like no one teaches you how to advocate for your needs in a workplace or, you know, like what what happens if you're a person who can't work in a workplace where you can advocate for your needs because you're poor. You know, like we live live in a world that is – has so many stressors on us. We have no coping skills for dealing with the stressors. I tell you what. Even just things like to go back to body image as well, Mm. the idea that you would do exercise because it's good for your mental health as well as for your physical health. Went to the psychologist the other day, was like, and she's like, are you doing any exercise? And I was like, no, no, I haven't. And she's like, I think that might help you. And not in a, I think you're fat and you need to lose weight way, but in a, she said, you know, like when you're anxious and you're able to, because medication is great it solves a lot of a lot of things but I've had a particularly bad time with grief and stuff as well Mm. um lately and what I'm finding is that because the baseline like medication fixes a lot of things like the physical symptoms I used to find Mm. of like feeling really ill and Mm. the physical like okay I'm anxious now things it's things like I can't concentrate or I find that I'm overthinking or I've been looking at my phone for five hours and I don't know what I've been doing Mm. And that's where she was like, if you were to do some exercise, even if it's a little bit, it's your body like when you're in bed and you're trying to, you can't switch your brain off because mm. your body's sort of almost wanting that movement and mm. to do something. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah, but we're never, ever taught that. Like we're, and just the way that we talk about mental health in the society, I think it's becoming more clear to me that mm. it's like, is it is physiological the word of like, it's mm-hmm. both, it's yeah. not one or the other but we're still sort of taught of like take care of your mental health but it, like, it's all connected yeah, it's yeah. all connected yeah I yeah I, yeah my I exercised when I was young to punish myself as you said and that, I did that for a long 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 time and it wasn't until I started swimming when I was in my kind of mid to late 20s because my anxiety was really bad I'd get out of the pool and be like oh Oh, my anxiety feels, whoa, hang on, what? Are you telling me that if you move, you release hormones that make you feel good? Like this was absolutely staggering news to me. And, you know, like most people aren't getting the minimum exercise requirements that the government sets out. I think it's two and a half hours of moderate exercise in a week or one and a half hours of vigorous exercise. And that's not, you know, like it's it's not that much. It's a lot if you are a single parent or you are working all the time, but oh my God, it's in, yeah, like it's absolutely astounding how differently I occupy my body when I'm exercising because it, it feels different to inhabit because I'm not being like, oh, I've put on weight. I'm being like, I picked up a dumbbell and it was heavier than the other dumbbell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like I, since we've moved down to Geelong, um, when we're not in lockdown, I've been surfing, which is hilarious. I'm I'm really bad at all the components of surfing. Balance, no, swimming, not strong. 
But it's so amazing to come home and be like, oh, I'm really tired. But I didn't notice because I was having fun. Oh, my God. Yeah, it could be fun. When I when I first started doing pole dancing and Caitlin does like hoop and silks and stuff. stuff. Oh wow. I was trying to think of the word. I was like, what is the word for this? But like that that was a huge shift for me of being like, oh, I did that with my body. And like the next day you're like, oh my body hurts so much and it's so good. Like I did that. And you've got bruises to show through it, which sounds bad. But you're like, I did that. And also I would come out of that hour. And because this is a thing maybe with surfing as well, when you're learning a new skill, you're concentrating so hard on that. And I'd come out and be like, oh, I actually didn't think about like shit for an hour. Like, oh my God, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah, totally. It's oh, a- sorry. We've gone off on such a good Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, but that's amazing. Yeah. You know, all these things you go, like there's the kind of, um, Oh, there's a great Tom Cardi song uh, where he's being like, why am I so anxious? And it's like, yeah, it's like, because you eat like shit, you don't exercise and you go on the bags all weekend. Like, what do you mean? We all, yeah. it's like, we've all forgotten how to be people, like how to, how to, how to care for a body. It's actually been quite helpful. I've, I've got some friends who have a three-year-old now and watching them care for her is really instructive to remind you how to care for yourself. Where it's like, have you slept? Have you drunk some water? Have you just taken a really deep breath and let it out again? Have you moved your body today? Have you given it vegetables? Like it, it is a sort of- Have you played? Have you have had you some play time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also what we forget as adults. Mm-hmm. Like, have you just yeah. let your mind like go and play and have yeah, imagination have and not be at work all the time, which is incredibly hard when you're working from home and you're in lockdown and stuff and you're surrounded by it. Yeah. But just to have some play is- yeah, yeah. We don't let ourselves do that because that's for children. Yeah, totally. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Amazing. Why are we but, yeah. bad at being humans? <laughs> it's because of capitalism. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. capitalism is like, let's, oh, I was talking to some friends earlier today about, um, I read a, a several books. Um, the one that uh, I can think of off the top of my head is Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is like, here's all these ways that you can make yourself focus really deeply on the work that you're doing, work really efficiently, so you can be a better shill for capitalism, so you can be more efficient for capitalism. No. I recommend if anyone is feeling like they want to find a reason to get off their phone, but they don't want to just be better at serving the machine of production, um, <laughs> uh, read How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Because that book is like, yeah, I mean, you should get off your phone and you should get into gardening because you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die really soon and the world is falling apart and you should be attentive to that because because you have to be. God. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's also yeah. really good at being. Yeah. I, I it's really one of that book being like, have you ever seen birds? Birds are so good. But there's also <laughs> some really good productive stuff and, and really empowering things in there about how to be a citizen of your local bioregion, how to, when you're feeling totally swamped by the terror of climate collapse, how to be like, okay, that park, that river is always clogged up and I'm going to be the person who makes the river not clogged up. In fact, I'll make my neighbours to come and help me with it. This idea of tending to your local area is really, um, is really beautiful. so awesome. Oh, I love that. I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah, yeah. Know, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that philosophy of like just actually paying attention and like noticing like birds are pretty impressive they fly around we can't do that you know and bioregionism kind of says like like, if you're a citizen of of your local bioregion first and foremost you notice 
who or what is there, and that's not just humans, and who was here and isn't anymore and who could be here again. So you start being like, oh, that native grass grows in that one spot. How do I maybe make that grow in more spots? And, yeah, it's really um, it's a really lovely way of being attentive. I mean, not entirely the same, but when we lived in England and my office had – I had my desk in front of the window and the window overlooked our little backyard and we had a squirrel feeder and oh my God, the amount of times I watched the squirrels, like that was just such a joy. I saw squirrels for the first time in London and I lost my mind. (laughs) When we put the squirrel feeder there, the first time they came to it, we had to like try and they watching them try to learn how to use a squirrel feeder first was amazing but my my partner and I just like laid on the ground and we're just watching it we're like oh my god this is so cool it's just so cute and they're just so gorgeous and I I love them so much and I used to once the leaves all dropped off the trees you could see them like chasing each other through the trees and I would sort of see this movement and I'd look up and like have a few minutes and it's just that like he said like noticing and then also once I, I mean, I, the thing I miss most about England is probably the seasons. And so, you know, watching the leaves fall, enjoying that and knowing that we were going to leave soon. So trying to like take those pictures with my mind and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, over winter, then suddenly I was like, oh, oh, there's some little, there's some little things on the tree. Like, are they going to like blossom? Are we going to, oh, you can see the leaves growing back. And like every day, like noticing things like that was so helpful and I don't have that now and I do wallow a little bit in my like, I don't like being here or whatever and where we are right now. But there are so many things we can do each day to do little things like that. I mean, I guess I do that with my dog now. So yeah, it's okay. Throw something. It's so exciting being like, there are shoots emerging. And yeah, I pulled out a carrot from my backyard the other day and I was like, there was, look, this was a seed and now it's a carrot. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um. Sarah, yes. do you think that you could pick a favourite essay in your book? Um, that's, that is an interesting question. I feel like it kind of shifts depending on the day because they all kind of do different things. Um, I feel like at the moment I'm enjoying um, stage directions because I feel like I'm not seeing a lot of writing about um, epics of care in the um, performance industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like them for different reasons. I like writing abject euphoria because I got to just write really revolting descriptions of pimple popping videos. Um, yeah, that is <laughs> that is also such a you know ridiculous like human experience that we all do, isn't it? It's like, and we're all taught that it's all so gross, but we all oh, do yeah, it, we're... and we all think it's funny, and we're all you know, yeah, yeah, like we all our bodies are gross. And we yeah. are taught that we've got to suppress that grossness as much as possible. And yeah, it's yeah. interesting once you start being like, do I, how much, how much do I actually care about? Do I smell bad? No. Am I inhibiting anyone else's enjoyment of their life by occupying this body? No. All right. Well, let's start from there and see how we go. Yeah. Well, it's like the the conversation around sex as well. And yeah. the idea of like, we're taught, like, I guess, you know, comes up a lot in media and stuff of this idea of like, porn shaping the way that we are supposed to view sex and stuff but I guess even the fact that like actually like objectively like when you have sex it is kind of funny like our bodies are funny yes exactly (laughs) like it's gross and funny it's not like this image that we're all presented that is Mm. fake and in real life like 
funny stuff happens and weird sounds get made and it's but but you're sort of it's like if it happens we're sort of taught I'll ignore that like pretend it didn't happen have the lights off don't like try and present yourself in the best way possible and stuff Mm. like that but it it just we're all human and it, it just doesn't make sense that when you think about it, like, why do we do that to ourselves? It just causes more anxiety and more stress and more hate for our bodies. Yeah, and, like, when you think about the fact that, like, we all hide those human things from other humans who also are hiding them from us, like, it makes no sense. Yeah, when you say it like that, you're like, yeah, why is that? Yeah, it's like we're all idiots. The book is, like, if we just stop being ashamed then there's so much possibility for learning and understanding. And in the in the essay about sex, there's a section where I talk about um, uh, specifically about bacterial vaginosis, which is a very common, um, it's not an SDI, it's, uh, but it is a sexually kind of like, you, you, you don't get BV if you're not having sex usually. And it creates a, a kind of fishy odour in the vagina and um, discharge and you, it, it can have quite serious um, long-term repercussions on um like uh, baby health and on fertility, but I and and some staggering number of women in America have it at any given time, and I have a theory that a lot of the reason that people don't realise that there's a problem, they don't go to get help, is because there is this culture of making jokes about how women's vaginas smell like fish, and a healthy vagina shouldn't smell fishy. Um, a vagina with BV does, and so because this is like weird culture of shame and joking around women's bodies and women's discharge in particular, there are millions of women who don't realise that they have a problem because they think that that's how their body is meant to smell. And so if we're not speaking frankly about what our bodies uh, do and should do, being like, hey, natural uh, body odour, it varies a lot. It often smells a bit like yeast or it often smells a bit like, you know, like whatever your personal vaginal odor smells like but if you're not saying these are what it's not meant to smell like and not then then you're, you're doing people a huge disservice and yeah what kind of hilariously people who don't realize that they're meant to be producing discharge and that discharge has an odor naturally start doing things like douching their vaginas therefore creating things like bacterial vaginosis oh my god it's terrible yeah. it's such a self it's a terrible cycle yeah, yeah. but I mean it's the same thing about like when I got diagnosed with IBS yeah. as well is like because I didn't talk to my GP for so long mm-hmm. because I didn't realize that what was happening to me wasn't normal yeah, yeah. because mm-hmm. no one talks about pooping yeah because it's taboo yeah, um yeah. but if we talked about it more maybe I would have realized um because then I I didn't realize how sort of wrong things had gotten until I was going for th- like the colonoscopy and stuff yeah. for diagnosis mm-hmm. and they were like and how long have you been experiencing experiencing symptoms and I was like um like forever like yeah. this is just my life like yeah. sorry what <laughs> what do you mean this is different yeah. my yeah. my weird example of that is you know not something that's generally gross in society's eyes but <laughs> I remember when the first time I got my eyes tested when I was 15 mm. and they put that like giant thing on me with like all the little lenses yeah. and the doctor opened his door and like it was in a shopping center so yeah. the bullies was like across the way and I was like, oh, my God, I can read what's in aisle number 12. I yeah. just thought that no one could see that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had yeah. so many friends who were like, did you know that trees have leaves and that they're, like, separate? And you could, like, what? 
Yeah, people who were short sighted who were like, oh, yeah, I presume trees were just like a blur. It's like a, but you yeah, can see yeah. all of the leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah. often amazed still. Like all the time, I, you know, remember to wear my glasses and I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. Like, Things right have now, definition. Crisp. Yeah. yeah, like right now, my bookshelves are on the other side of my bedroom over here yeah. and I can't read the title on any of them. It's just a blur of the colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> yeah. I forget that, Caitlin. I forget that. Yeah, because I only need yeah. to see them like far things. I used to joke that I wear them at the cinema and at the movies. Yeah. At the theater and at the movies, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a cultural I event. also, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your opera. Okay, what are those like lorgnettes? Exactly, classes? like yeah. an opera monocle or yeah. something. Um, because I don't need to wear them like to read or at work or yeah. whatever, but I do wear them while driving. Yeah. I'm safe, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> now, Obviously, you know, we've talked about a lot of the um, random subjects in this book um, and how a lot of it is, you know, written around your own experience, but you also did a lot of research. Would you yeah. like to tell us a bit about that? Look, I love uh, hearing about research. Oh, nerd. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was important. I mean, we do a podcast about books in our own time that we don't get paid for, so yeah. yes. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> um, it was important to me when writing this book that um, the essays be grounded in data as well as just in personal experience um partly because I wanted to demonstrate to people how these issues are very very common um yeah and you know some some of them so that no one would read the book and go this girl's weird (laughs) she's experiencing this I think it's very easy to dismiss especially women's writing about bodies by being Mm. like women when will they when will they shut up about their bodies they're being like actually (laughs) This is experienced by a lot of people and I, I was I, I really interested as well in bringing in data about men's experiences as well. Like in the body image chapter, I was like, how many men do hate their bodies? Oh, heaps, heaps. Yeah. Um, My partner says things all the time that wouldn't necessarily be acceptable if a woman was to say, oh, don't say that about your body if it was a woman. Yeah, yeah. But it's like acceptable for him to like joke about mm. his getting like getting a pompy belly or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, totally. Um, And so, and I wanted also, I didn't want to just be, you know, like using articles from the Daily Mail. So um, I I finished a master's at the end of 2019 and they they kick you off all of the the good um, databases in the library. I was like, can I pay you to give me access to the, like, yeah, (laughs) no, they're like, oh, you can still use the library. You can't. But um, I have a friend who uh, was doing a PhD, so I stole her login which meant that I had access to a lot of really good um research and I also wanted to oh, talk excellent. to people who um who were experts in the field so in the the essay about mental health I spoke to um Steve Ellen who is a uh psychiatrist who um Melbourne listeners might know from the radio triple uh, radio show radiotherapy um and he was fantastic terrific and actually very calming in a lot of the um, the information he gave me because I was like, why does everyone I know have a mental health disorder? And he was like, everybody <laughs> has always had, like the, the, the rates of mental health in society are not actually increasing particularly. It's just that our ability to measure them is increasing. So in the 60s, for example, when they were like, how many people have like mental health problems? They went to the police and they went to like hospitals and they're like, hey, how many people do you reckon have mental health problems? And the police were like, no, like, one percent of people and then they started sending surveys door to door 
being like, hey, do you have mental health problems? And they're like, oh my God, oh my God, we're having this epidemic of mental health crises. But it was just people being like, oh no, you, you asked me. No one had asked me before. Yeah. And now we're getting much better at talking about it for one thing. The stigma around mental health is decreasing. And our, our ways of um, determining what constitutes a mental health uh, diagnosis are also shifting. Like um, now uh, the it's it's easier than ever to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety, for example, yeah. um, which means which is great. It means it's easier for you to get help. Uh, but yeah, where because it is just much more prominent in society, we we have this sense that everybody is struggling. But I you know I look at my dad. My dad's seventy five, um, and my dad thinks that his mental health is great. My dad also <laughs> flat out does not lay down memories of times when he has felt bad. Like I went over recently, um, I played him an episode of a podcast that I had made where I interviewed him about uh, when he was in his 30s, he had a bit of a crisis and he walked from Canberra to Adelaide, as you do. I mean, that in and of itself should be pretty indicative that my dad probably should have seen a therapist. Um, he was like, I just needed to sort my head out. So I walked to, to Adelaide. From Canberra. from Canberra to Adelaide. Yeah. I'm trying That's to think way. how. That's really far. I'm yeah. trying to think. So I interviewed him about this and I played him the interview. He'd never heard it. And uh, he found it very moving and it made him cry. And a few days later I called him and I was like, oh, that was so beautiful. Um, you know, I came to visit you and you, you cried about the interview. And he went, hmm? And I was like, yeah, I, I came. And he was like, yeah, I know. We had dinner. I picked you up from the, the ferry. And I was like, yeah. And, I, and he, just, he, he had not, his brain had just been like, no, I don't want that one. And just had not laid down that memory. And wow. his wife was like, actually, now that I think about it, he just doesn't record the data. And he, he found the book really hard to read, partly because he was like, why are you talking about all these things? Why don't you just leave them in the past? And I was like, Dad, talking about them and acknowledging that they happen makes me a more empathetic, a more gracious, a more kind, a more caring person. I'm a better friend. I'm better in relationships. I don't just walk across the country if there's a problem in my relationship. <laughs> Um, and he was just so bamboozled by that because he comes wow. from a time when you were taught, especially as a man, God, and this is, God, this is yeah. still such a, this is still such a case for men. This is the great cruelty of, of patriarchy is that it absolutely destroys men as well as destroying women. The number yeah. of young men I know who are tradies who are like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to push all the problems down and I don't have any problems and and I'm just going to develop a substance abuse problem instead of talking about it, like staggering. But yeah, um, good yeah. solution. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So yes, we're getting we're getting better at talking about it. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe my knowledge that I'm a person with anxiety means that I experience anxiety more than I otherwise would. But it also means that I can predict it a bit better, and I can control it a bit better, and I can talk about it with other people a bit better. I can be like, hey. I am anxious today, therefore I might be a bit scatty rather than being like, keep together, Sarah, keep together, don't let anyone know you're struggling. Because, God, that's yeah. exhausting. It's more exhausting yeah. than having anxiety. Yes, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> There's someone with anxiety, I feel the same. Mm. Um, yeah, and just being able to say to someone like, I'm sorry I didn't reply to your message, but the thought of replying, like, it's not that I don't like you, I just, to, to, for some reason, replying to a message just seemed really hard. <laughs> but like, I could, only, I had like so many messages that I just picked like five to reply to. <laughs> and then like, the others have just sat there for three weeks. And now like, I feel really bad about that. But I'm sorry, I just can't. Just I look at it and I see that, 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 you know, there's a message there. And my brain's just like, nope, get out of WhatsApp now. And I just, <laughs> just 
happened. <laughs> um, and talk about Are You Okay Day as, as you did before. I think the problem with Are You Okay Day is that it doesn't give anyone any tools when someone says that they're not okay. Mm. And yeah, you know, I, I know a lot of people with some. What happens after you ask? Oh yeah, exactly. I know yeah. a lot of people. I know a lot of people with depression and anxiety. I also know a lot of people with um, some uh, more intense mental health conditions. And um, for whatever reason, I kind of developed the capacity pretty early on to be able to sit with people telling me some pretty hardcore stuff and not panic. And the thing that I've heard most often from those friends early on when they were disclosing stuff to me was oh my God, you, I can just talk to you about it because usually when I tell people, they either cry or they panic and try to call the police or the ambulance. Wow. And just having someone who, you know, sometimes you've got to call the ambulance, you know, sometimes you've got to be yeah. able to call on a cat team. But um, yeah, a lot of people don't have never learned the skill to be like, hey, how are you? And the person goes, I kind of want to die today. And you're like, okay. That's Which it. also is, the, that's the thing about therapy is, which I think has only been a light bulb moment for me recently mm. is that it's not so much. I mean, yes, you learn skills for yeah. coping with things, mm. but a lot of time it's just bloody nice to have someone who is completely removed yeah. from the situation, but cares for you in a, um, professional in a professional way, way yeah. not in a, they don't have a stake in your life in the same way that a partner or a parent or a friend has. Mm. So they can objectively listen to you. Yeah. And just telling people all the shit that's happening in your head mm. will help oh, yeah. in a way that sometimes, like you said, like if you tell a friend, mm. they might immediately panic that they are, for example, going to lose you or that you're going to do like, and not that I've ever been in that situation in either way, mm. but just going to a therapist just and, and thinking like, not even, oh, this is going to change my life because blah, blah, blah. Just being like, it's just going to help me because I can talk to someone for yeah, an hour. Just talking about Again, it. Again, massively privileged that I'm able to say that because mm-hmm. it costs a bloody lot of money. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> just got off track again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the thing with this book as well is there are so many things it just makes you think about. And we really, we really appreciate um you know, being able to read it. And I guess that to, to lead on to our final question, you have given so much of yourself in this book and shared your experiences. What do you sort of hope that people take away from it when they read it? I mean, I've kind of, I, even you two at the start of this conversation where you said, oh, you know, I, I recognise so much in that and, and I, I felt like I'd had really similar experiences. That That is kind of the, the greatest feedback really because when you're writing like this, um, I kind of wanted to do two things with the writing. I wanted to be fearless and I wanted to be funny. Um, and check, check. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, I, you know, we talked before about the idea that art has to be really serious. I think comedy or levity probably is the better word. Um, it's such a powerful tool for being like, come with me. We're going to go somewhere and it, it's going to be okay. I'm, I've got you. I'm going to look after you. And I think sometimes you read things where people are like, we're going to talk about how terrible it is and everything's really awful and there's no light to it. And you're like, God, well, yeah. now I, I don't feel safe because now you've just dragged me into this space with me. And I wanted to allow there to be space for the absurdity of the body because I think that's yeah. the thing that strikes me the most is that for, for all our expectations of what we want our bodies to do, they mostly don't play along. Um, <laughs> Like you, you, the like expectations versus reality meme of the body is like the cinematic glorious landscape of the body, and then the reality is this kind of burping, fighting, anxious, 
collapsing sickening body and you're like come on yeah but that, but there's such humor to be found in there and and once you start being like hey I'm not expecting anything um to go the way I, I wanted it to that is such a powerful tool um and so when people I, I've been contacted by people who said uh yeah I, I saw so much of myself in this book and and it made me think differently about the way that I approach my body and it made me feel a little bit braver. God, like that is incredible. What a what a remarkable gift to receive from a reader to have someone be like, I, I see myself a little bit differently now and um, I can I can approach myself with a little bit more kindness and care. That is the most extraordinary feedback to receive. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, really this book is truly all about how absurd humans are and our bodies <laughs> yeah. are um, and it is so relatable. Like, I read that, um, it was like a line and I think it was the opening of the chapter and you were like, when I exercise, I turn bright red. And you were like, and not like lightly flushed, like, oh, what a good workout, like so red. And so do I. Michelle can vouch for that. I walk like around the block and I look like a tomato. And I'm a face sweater, like (laughs) nobody's business. It's just hard when you live in tropical Queensland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> everyone's like why do you want to move it's and I'm like I want to go somewhere colder because I hate this heat and everyone's like but you were born here I'm like yeah I know why do you think I'm so annoyed with it like I'm just used <laughs> Been to dealing it. With it my whole life yeah You're and just- I hate it <laughs> <laughs> why you'd think my body would be used to this would be built for it born in a heat wave I should be used to it but again my body's letting me down <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, our bodies are so crazy. But, yeah. yes, this has been so fun to chat about all of that craziness. So thank you so much for giving us your time, Sarah. No worries. Thank you both so much. Where can people find and follow you online? You can find me uh, via my website, which is sarahwalker.work. You can find me on Instagram at sarahtakesphotos. And you can no longer find me on Twitter because I deleted my Twitter account because it was stressing me <laughs> out. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's so funny how many people say that and they're like, oh, you can find me on Twitter here, but I don't really use it because I don't really like it and stuff. Like, yeah. So I don't I like Twitter. I was spending a lot of time seeing writers just like having beef with each other. And I was like, oh, no, I don't, life's too short for writer beef. So I thought yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the book is available now and UQP were very kind in sending us copies to read and we absolutely loved it highly recommend it so thank you so much for joining us no worries thank you thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review 